Acts chapter 16, verse 9 through 34. Acts 16, 9 through 34. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and leading the city of that and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. And one more passage. I'm turning to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You could be seated.
you've gotten your exercise for the day. Um, well, uh, good morning, Grace Church. Good to see you this morning. For those of you who are uh, visiting with us or maybe are just unobservant, um, I am not uh, Pastor Justin. Uh, my name is Brandon Keel. I am the pastor of discipleship here. Um, Justin and his wife, Rachel, are in Israel right now. Um, not sure why they're there. I guess they have good beaches or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, no, they're having a great trip from what I can see on social media. So do continue to pray for them, that they'll continue to get uh, rest, be encouraged. And, uh, and also that would be a, a sweet time of getting to see the, um, the grounds that our Savior walked. Um, so do continue to keep them in your prayers. In the meantime, uh, we are beginning a new series this morning. Uh, we are in the book of, as you heard, Philippians. Well, we're in Acts, but we're in Philippians. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, but uh, I'm excited uh, to be in Philippians. Uh, we are going to be there for the next uh, few weeks, 8, 10, 12, something like that. And um, I'm looking forward to being in Philippians with you. Philippians is one of my favorite books. I'm not much good at scripture memory. Uh, I try. My wife is much better than I am. She's much more of a systematic thinker, also more disciplined, but don't tell her I said that. Um, but at, at some point in my walk with, uh, with Jesus and in uh, memorizing with others especially, I, I thought about it, and I've actually memorized the first three books of Philippians at some point or another. Now, don't be impressed That's, that encapsulates probably most of the Scripture that I've memorized, but I'm constantly drawn back to this book. If I'm going to commit some Scripture memory, if I'm going to spend the time and energy and effort, it seems like I'm constantly drawn to the book of Philippians. I think that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is just that it's so full of what I like to call Hobby Lobby verses. So um, that's the verses that you can find in Hobby Lobby that are usually handwritten on you know, some of that nice fancy driftwood and all that good stuff. But it's full of them. So you've got uh, in there, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. My Lord. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Paul writes, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And of course, the life verse of Instagrammers and athletes everywhere, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians is chock full of goodness, but it's not just good uh, because it's got, word, it's got verses that make a good iPhone lock screen, right? It is good because of that, um, but at only two and a half pages, we see in Philippians Paul at his most positive, Paul at his most optimistic. In pretty much every other letter, whether it's Galatians or Colossians, Paul is combating something. Paul is going against some heresy, or Paul is, you know, correcting false teaching in a church or false practice in a church. You don't really have that in Philippians. You have some adjustments, some tweaks that Paul's making, but in large part, Paul in Philippians is just encouraging the church at Philippi. He's talking about how much he loves them, how much he yearns for them. You see Paul at his most, um, I don't want to say most pastoral because it is the job of a pastor to reprove and exhort, but his most, again, optimistic. Um, Philippians, the message of Philippians is not, don't do this, Instead, it's be mature, continue on, keep going in what you are doing. As a matter of fact, in, uh, in the two and a half pages in my Bible that Philippians holds, the word joy or rejoice, I counted, I may have miscounted, so if you want to correct me, send me an email, um, don't call me. But uh, the, joy, the word joy or rejoice happens 17 times in the two and a half pages that Philippians encapsulates. Paul is happy in Philippians. He is excited about what is happening at Philippi. As a matter of fact, in, in verse 3, uh, which well, Ethan will uh, cover for us next week, but I'm going to steal some of his thunder here. Um, in verse 3, he connects it to partnership. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we've titled this series, Joy Together. Because what we see in Philippians is that our joy, our Christian joy, is uniquely tied to our partnership in the gospel. They go together. We partner because of joy, and we're joyful because we partner. We are joyful together. We build joy together. Jesus' vision for Grace Church is a joy-filled gospel partnership. It's the beard. 
So as we look at Acts 16, what we see here is, is almost a, a prequel, right? So you know prequel, like they make a movie and then they go back and kind of um, in time and they make like the pre-movie, right? So um, Star Wars has made it in every sermon I've preached here. So I'll just go ahead and quote Star Wars as an example of a prequel, right? We have the originals and they flash back in time to give the childhood of one of the main characters. So what we have in Acts 16 is the founding of the church at Philippi that Paul is, gonna, is now writing to. So there's probably about 10 or 15 years in between the events that uh, Rodney just read for us and the first two verses in Philippians. So the prequel tells us, um, the prequel shows us that the Philippian church began with three diverse people encountering one subversive message. So you see, this, this joyful partnership in Philippians is downright baffling. It shouldn't happen. It is confusing. It is odd that these three people would be the foundation for the most healthy church that we have in the New Testament. This joyful partnership that Paul is commending and overflowing. And yet, it begins this way. I love the variety of circumstances through which the gospel of Jesus transforms these three people. So I don't know if you notice the characters here, but you've got a wealthy Asian businesswoman. You've got a demon-riddled Greek slave girl and a hardened blue-collar Roman jailer. And these are the dream team that Paul is going to use to found the Philippian church. So let's look at each one of these individually and and see what we can glean here. Um, So for Lydia, which you see her in the first few verses that we read, verses um, 16, I'm sorry, verses 11 through 15. Um, So for for Lydia, what we see is a wealthy God-fearer follows Jesus after a simple conversation. So did you notice in verse 14, one who heard us, Paul said, was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Theodoria, Theodora, there you go, Theodora, one of those. They didn't tell me that one in seminary. A seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and then she was baptized. It was as simple as that. All right, so Lydia, it's, it's a little bit confusing. She was a worshiper of God. Okay, well, she's already a worshiper of God. Why is Paul preaching the gospel to her? So Lydia is what is often called in the New Testament a God-fearer. So she was somebody, she was a Gentile, who was seeking to know God. She had essentially rejected paganism, right? She, was, she saw all the pagan Roman gods. She said, no, I don't want that. Instead, I'm going to pursue the one true God. And so she was around believers. She was seeking God, but she hadn't yet trusted Jesus. She hadn't, let, she hadn't yet committed her life to Christ. She wasn't yet following and bearing fruit in light of the gospel of Jesus. So we see in, in Lydia's story that being a God-fearer, even today, is not enough. Right? So, so fearing God and going through some motions and showing up to the right places at the right time and rehearsing the right words is not enough. Paul doesn't say, oh, okay, yeah, you're praying and you're talking about God, so I'm going to go find somebody with some baggage. You keep doing what you're doing, right? What does he do? We good? Maybe? Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll press on, man. Um, so, so, she, so Paul looks at her and says, no, you need the gospel of Jesus as much as these next two people need the gospel of Jesus. You, are, you can be around God. You can even seek to worship God. But Paul says, I'm still going to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not yet a Christian. She's missing the key component of her faith. That is, she's missing Jesus, is that you this morning? Have you showed up to church to do the religious rituals? Do you say you fear God, say the right words at the right time, show up to the right place, and yet you've never encountered Jesus? You've never believed the gospel of Christ. You've never turned from your sin and turned to Jesus as your only hope and peace. If it is the same gospel that saved Lydia, the same Lord that opened her heart, can open your heart today. So Paul walks up to this Bible study. I love this. Appeals to her intellect, shares the gospel, and it's as easy as that, right? One simple conversation and a life is transformed. And there are plenty of Lydia's in our life, right? There are plenty of people who, if we walked up to them and began to ask them about things of faith, things of Christ, 
They would be interested to hear. They simply need someone to share with them. Are you praying for Lydia's in your life? Are you approaching the Lydia's in your life, seeking to share the gospel with them? With that said, Lydia's are, are kind of where most of us stop in our gospel-centered relationships. The Lydia's are where most of our approaching and where most of our reaching out and where most of our evangelism ends. What I mean by that is we go to people who we already assume know what sin means, right? We already assume they know what redemption means. They just need to hear it. They just need to be reminded. And there are plenty of those to reach in our area, but Paul continues on. Paul doesn't stop with Lydia. He doesn't check his box of, oh, okay, I got a seeker. She was asking the right questions. I had a conversation. She believed the gospel. Boom, done. Paul keeps going, and he finds a harder case than Lydia. Did you catch it in verse 16? Go into the place of prayer where we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Odd thing for a demon to say, isn't it? Um, shows us that the truth isn't always uh, helpful, right? The truth isn't always the truth just because it's coming out of someone's mouth. It is true. She's saying a true statement, but she's distracting from the message of Paul. And this she kept going on for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. We see in the slave girl, a vulnerable girl, far from God, is rescued after a powerful and supernatural deed. A powerful and supernatural deed. So you see, Paul here shows Jesus' power to this slave girl. He shows that Jesus is powerful enough. He is the one who, as he said, he was in Luke 4, 18, as he quoted from Isaiah. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I want you to imagine for just a moment this girl's life. So she is in captivity, first of all, to these men who are using her, the, the spirit of divination to make money from her, right? I don't expect she was treated incredibly well um, as she was in captivity to these men and being extorted and used. Also, she's not just in captivity to these men, she's also in captivity supernaturally to this spirit. So you can imagine this girl has not had a very good life up until this point. This girl has been oppressed and neglected and captive in a number of different areas. And yet, when she encounters Paul, when she encounters a minister of the gospel, do you notice Paul doesn't here start with the conversation? Did you catch that? His approach is different than it was with Lydia. Paul doesn't say, let's sit down and let me appeal to your intellect for a moment and maybe we can work this out with a couple of apologetic arguments. Paul doesn't start there, does he? Instead, he starts with a powerful deed. He will get to the message of the gospel. That will not be neglected. And yet, he starts with a powerful act. It opens up the door for her to be freed from captivity. I think of the many people who, in modern days, work in Areas like foster care and adoption in crisis pregnancy centers who work in refugee ministry. These areas are not only biblical and just, but they provide a powerful apologetic, a powerful opening for the gospel to be proclaimed. You see, Paul starts here with a spirit-empowered act, a spirit-empowered deed, and it opens up the door for this lady, this girl, to be saved. I think she was. I think she was converted. That's what I believe this passage is showing us. You see, the Spirit will fill us with supernatural power and compassion as we proclaim the gospel. And he will even, as he does with Paul, use our frustrations, right? Use our clouded motivations because it doesn't say Paul was filled with compassion for the young lady and just felt this warming in his heart for her. What does it say? Luke was honest with us. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her, right? And yet, the Lord uses Paul's interesting motivation. He finally just got tired of her interrupting his sermon, right? And commanded in the name of Jesus for the Spirit to come out. And yet, God uses that to free her and show the power of Jesus supernaturally. 
You see, one thing we see in this slave girl is that Jesus can save the most hopeless case. Brothers and sisters, do not give up on the hopeless cases that you see in your life. Do not give up on your friend who seems far from God, who it seems as though nothing would open their heart to the gospel. Do not give up on your, um, your family member, perhaps even your child who continues to rebel and push back against the gospel. Continue to pray. Continue to act as Paul did. Continue to show them the fruits of the Spirit in your own life. Continue to work on behalf of King Jesus. And that will be a more powerful apologetic than perhaps even your many words that you've already spoken could ever be. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep showing. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Not just for the Lydia's. Not just for the seekers who are almost there and need one conversation but even for the slave girls who seem in captivity on a dozen different fronts. We serve the God who is powerful enough to free the captive, who is powerful enough to preach good news to the poor, who can recover the sight of the blind and who can release the oppressed. He has proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. But God's still not done. Paul's preached the gospel to Lydia. He's preached the gospel to the slave girl. And this causes some problems, as often when we act for justice in the world and seek to follow the words of our Lord, it causes issues. So what, I don't know if you caught it, but what happens is the guys who own this girl and are making some money, they're not too happy that she no longer has the spirit in her that can divine some information for people, and they lose their profit. And so what do they do? They go to the authorities and say, man, this guy's causing some trouble. He's disturbing the city. Hey, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to go find us another um, person who's in captivity of the Spirit. And if we do that, then he's probably going to cast that one out too. So let's put him in prison and sequester him away, right? Well, their, their plan backfires a bit, doesn't it? As Paul's healing gets him in trouble with those who are profiting, he is thrown into jail. And in jail, he will meet a blue-collar adversary who repents after seeing their joyful example, their joyful Example. I can only imagine this jailer's mind as Paul and Silas are in shackles, right? So these, these shackles that, are, that Luke's talking about here weren't just handcuffs, right? They were essentially a torture device. They would craft the feet in a certain way that would cause the body to cramp. Um, it would be a very miserable way to be in captivity in prison. And you also noticed um, in this passage that the authorities didn't instruct the jailer to do this, right? So they say that uh, in verse... Um, Sorry. In verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows on them, in verse 23, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. All right, so they didn't tell them to do that. They said keep them safely. And what does the jailer do? Fastens them into the stocks. Seems to me that Luke's indicating that the jailer was enjoying this a bit more than he probably should have, right? This was not a, a nice Roman jailer. He's probably seen some stuff. Right? He's probably seen countless prisoners. He's a hardened guy. He's just showing up to work, trying to get his job done and get what little enjoyment he can out of it. And yet, he fastens them into the stocks, and I'm sure he's used to whines and moans and um, rightfully so, perhaps even cries of anguish in the prison. And as he locks the door of the prison and walks away, he hears echoing through the halls of the prison, not the normal groans of pain, but what does he hear? He hears singing and praying. As Paul and Silas are locked into the stocks, they are singing and praising God and praying for their deliverance. People like Paul are exasperating to people who hate the gospel, aren't they? You, you see it in Philippians, right? You say, we'll kill you. Paul says, great, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right? You say, well, we'll throw you in prison. I've learned to be content in all circumstances. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? You, you, you can't get this guy. You lock him into stock and he starts singing and praying. I can only imagine the exasperation of the jailer is, uh, he says, we're going we're to punish these guys, right? And he begins to hear sounds of joy, songs of praise to the God who is sovereign over even this. And yet he is to be praised. 
I was invited a few months ago by some generous church members, thank you, Miss Patsy and Adam, um, to go see uh, John Piper uh, speak at a, a local country club, which those of you who know John Piper know how funny that statement is. For those of you who don't know, John Piper's like the Protestant monk, right? So um, he's, uh, he's given away his millions of dollars in book sales uh, to, uh, to an organization that um, he doesn't profit off of. Uh, perhaps his most famous book is called Don't Waste Your Life, in which he rails against materialism and, uh, and greed, and uh, he, sells, he says, Jesus saves the American dream, right? He's got these catchy phrases, and yet here I am sitting with like these marble tables, and John Piper's up there teaching. I was, I was weirded out at first, but it actually was, it was awesome. It was, it was very tastefully done. It was, um, it was helpful. It was encouraging. Um, I got to meet one of my ministry heroes, and I was pumped about that. I don't think I was pump, as pumped as Justin was. Um, I, thought, uh, I thought we might have to take like 10 pictures instead of just one. He was, he was pumped, but I was excited too. Um, but I wasn't quite as excited um, as I was when I met the guy who I sat at the table with. So I didn't get to sit next to um, Piper, which was totally cool because I sat next to a guy named John Knight. Um, you've probably, you might have heard the name John Piper. You probably haven't heard the name John Knight. Um, John Knight also works for Desiring God, the organization that, that Piper leads. Um, but his articles aren't quite as famous. Um, he are not quite as well read. And yet I have read almost everything that he's written. Um, John Knight, when he, about 25 years ago, when his firstborn son was born, um, Paul was born and was born with severe uh, disabilities. Uh, he, was, he has autism, uh, he's blind, uh, he has cognitive disorders, a seizure disorder. Um, he was born with severe disabilities, and um, John was actually going to Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, when this happened. Um, and uh, I shared with John how encouraging his, his writings had been with going through some things with my second son, nothing to, to, to that extent, but still in trying to process how a good God could allow this to happen, not just do that, but shepherd me through this, and um, the writings of John Knight were incredibly helpful to me, and so I shared that with him, and um, he shared with me that actually when his son was born, he had, he had left Piper's church those 25 years ago. He said he was angry at God, um, he was frustrated, he didn't want anything to do with worshiping God, he couldn't wrap his mind around, um, around what was happening to him, and so he said, I just angrily checked out and, and left the church. And I asked him, I said, wow, so he's, he's one of the directors now. He's you know, a, pretty, a pretty big wig in this organization. Um, and the joy is just radiating off his face as I'm speaking. Um, I'm, as kind of an introvert, I was honestly kind of like, Dude, you need to chill out, you're talking too loud. You're, you know. But he was, just, he was that kind of guy, you know, um, just joyful. And I said, so what, what brought you back? And he chuckled, and he said, you know, I, I probably should say, like I, I read the Bible and, and found some answers and got my theology right. Um, he said, but honestly, that wasn't it. I, I asked around. I went to different churches. He said I even, you know, played around with like Mormonism and was asking all these questions. And he said I found out nobody had really good answers for why this was happening to me. Um, he said I found out actually most most answers were worse than the ones that my church was giving me. Uh, they were less they were less satisfactory. They so he said I, I looked around. I didn't like any of the answers people were giving me. But I sat down and I thought, and I thought about the people at Bethlehem Baptist. And I said you know what I'm, I haven't wrapped my mind around their answers yet, but man they're joyful. And he said, these, these people who, they've been through worse stuff than I have, and they continue to show up, and not just show up, but they're joyful. And he looked at me, and he said, I found the answers in the Bible. Um, that, took, that took a few years of wrapping my mind around meditating, praying. I found those answers, but what brought me back to Bethlehem was the people's joy. He said, that proved to be a greater apologetic, a greater draw than any answers they could have given me. brothers and sisters, the, the reason I, I tell that story is I want, I want to encourage you that your joy is not wasted. You fighting for your joy today in whatever circumstances you are in, not faking it, okay? So I'm not saying put a smile on and, and hope for the best, but actually cultivating and fighting for joy in all circumstances, learning to be content in whatever God gives us is worth it. Don't give up. Don't stop. Persevere. Men like me, men like John Knight are looking around, wondering who has answers in this world. But we don't really want answers, right? What we want is joy. Your joy, your fight for joy is worth it. And it was not wasted on this jailer. As they were about to escape, the jailer knows his life will likely end. So they were gonna, the Romans would have held him accountable. That's why he's so scared. If someone escapes from your prison and you're the jailer, usually it's life for life. 
So he's terrified. He's about to kill himself because it will probably be less painful than the Romans. Um, and instead of doing honestly what I probably would have done, which is this guy put me in stocks. I need to get out of here if I'm going to escape and taken off. What do Paul and Silas do? They say stop. They stop what they're doing. They don't run. And they minister to this jailer. As a result, I don't know if you noticed, this is like the evangelist's dream. I've never had this happen before. Maybe you have. The jailer asks them, how, do I, how am I going to be saved? How should I be saved? What should I do? Have you ever had that happen? Maybe you have. Um, some of you are probably better evangelists than I am. I've never had somebody ask me straight up, hey, man, could you just tell me how to be saved, please? Um, and yet, because of their joyful example, Paul and Silas get to share the gospel with this man on his own request. And now look at verse 34. Look at how the story ends. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he, what? Rejoiced along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. You see, the joy was contagious. The joy that Paul and Silas had in prison is now passed on to this jailer through the power of the Holy Spirit awakening in him his new affections for Christ. He now has the joy that he observed in Paul and Silas in jail. He is rejoicing in salvation. You see, the differences in each of these stories are striking, right? Apart from Paul's gospel, these three people don't meet They certainly don't hang out, right? They're not coming together for a potluck or a barbecue. They would have even really crossed paths. And yet, these three people are united under what? Not common ethnicity, not common background, not even common stories on how they got saved other than same person and same gospel, right? The gospel stays the same, and yet these people are united in their own diversity. The only thing they have in common is a newfound joy in Jesus. And that might be the only thing you have in common with the person you're sitting next to, right? Some of you are like, amen. Um, And that's okay, right? That's good. You see, I I hope this feels like a a family to you. I hope this feels like a welcoming place. I hope Grace Church, when you walk in the doors, feels like you are welcomed and belong. And yet, if we never feel uncomfortable at church, it is possible that we are worshiping our own comfort, and we are building our unity on something other than Jesus. Because I expect when the wealthy Asian businesswoman, the demon-ruled slave girl, and the blue-collar Roman jailer came together and started their little church, I don't expect they got together and sang Kumbaya, right? It was probably a little bit weird. They probably had to learn how to get along with each other. So some diagnostic questions for you as we think through whether we are building our unity on Jesus, whether we are ready for this kind of radical togetherness. Are you ready to worship next to someone who votes differently than you? Are you ready to submit to an elder who is less educated than you? Are you ready to work together to serve your community in a life group with someone who was born in a different millennium than you? If not, the question has to be asked, what is it that we are showing up for? What is it that we think brings us together? Anything other than Jesus can be cast aside. He is enough to build his church. A Jewish missionary crosses paths with an Asian merchant, Greek slave girl, and Roman soldier. No, this is not the beginning of a joke. This is the beginning of a church. If you find yourself a bit stretched and uncomfortable this morning, welcome to the party. This is what God does. So that's the prequel. So let's jump in for just a moment to the main show. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. So the message of Philippians, we're not, we're not going to cover um, the whole message of Philippians this morning. Um, I might try, but I've only got a few minutes, so I'll refrain. The message of Philippians in, in one sentence. Jesus' vision for his church is a joy-filled partnership in the gospel. Jesus' vision for a mature church, what Paul wants them to continue to press forward to, what he's spurring them on to, what he's hoping they will continue to cultivate and accomplish as a church is a joy-filled partnership in the gospel. You see, 10 or 15 years later, Paul is writing from a different jail cell. Ooh, Alabama came out there. Um, more than, there, are, there are more than three people in the church at Philippi now. It's, it's grown past the original three But his love has also grown with these years. He will say in later verses, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he's going to point them to these two themes, joy in the gospel and partnership in the gospel. You see, we don't drift toward joy 
together. This isn't something that naturally just happens as we sit back and hope for the best. We have to fight for joy together. That's what Paul is encouraging them. He says, you have it. You're there. You have the seeds of joy together, but don't stop. Keep going. Don't rest on your laurels, but continue to press on toward Christian maturity. Continue to press on toward joyful unity. You see, Paul wasn't Smiley McSmilerson, right? He, he wasn't saying that joy is in the absence of tears, that you can never weep, always say every day's a Friday, right? Just keep on keeping on and hope for the best. Instead, Paul has seen tears. Paul has wept tears. Paul has seen sorrows, and yet he has experienced joy in those things. As a pastor, I've done... Uh, more funerals than weddings, actually. Um, some of you guys need to get married so I can even out my ratio a little bit. Um, but I've done a lot of funerals, and you know, it's, it's interesting as you, as you look out, funerals are, are not a happy time, right? People who are like, I want my funeral to be a celebration. I know what, I know what you mean, but like, it's going to be weird if like, we start cranking up the bass. And you know, the funerals are, there is a celebratory aspect to a Christian funeral, and yet they are moments of sorrow and weeping and tears. This is entirely appropriate to cry at funerals because death is not right. This is not the way it should be. But in a Christian funeral, what you see most often is through tears, what are people doing? They're sharing stories about the deceased, right? They're sharing about God's work in his life and they're expressing hope in where they are now and that they will meet them again in eternity. You see, that's joy. Joy is through tears often. Joy is in good seasons and bad. Joy is this underwriting hope of the Christian that this is not the last piece of our story. This is not all there is. Death is horrific. Cancer is horrific. We can acknowledge this. We don't put a smile on these things and pretend that everything's okay. Sin has broken things, and yet Jesus is putting it back together, and this is our joy. So we do this in a couple of ways. We continue to fight for joy first, Paul says, by living as servants of Jesus. Do you notice what he calls himself? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So I looked, and in every other letter, Paul calls himself an apostle. In the letter to the Galatians, he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In one letter, I think it was Romans, he calls himself an apostle and a servant of Christ Jesus. Philippians is the one place where he doesn't call himself an apostle. He just goes straight into servant. I like that. I think I know why, too. At least I could speculate. Um, I think because there's no controversy. So you can see Paul leading out with apostle for good reason, right? He's invoking his authority. You need to listen to me. God has given me a directive for you. And you need to listen up because I'm an apostle, dadgummit. And yet here, he doesn't have that. Because he knows that the Philippians are already unified. He doesn't need to cite his credibility to the Philippians. Instead, he leads out with servant. But I think another reason he does this is because this is going to be a theme in the letter, especially in chapter 2 when he points to Jesus as servant. He's already kind of getting their ears itching to hear more about this identity of what it is to be a servant. He says, Paul, I am an apostle, but I'm not going to call myself that here. Instead, I'm going to call myself a servant. But this is kind of contradictory to the whole joy thing, right? I mean, wait a second. Are, are we supposed to sacrifice our joy and, you know, not, and count others more significant than ourselves and just give up our joy for a moment? And then, you know, later on we'll worry about joy. But right now we've got to sacrifice. That's, that's what serving is, right? Serving is sacrificing your own wants for others. So to, at the very what, the fourth word in the book? We've already contrasted our big slide. We've got to get Iris to redo it, right? Um, I don't think so. You see, I don't think that's our choice. Do I sacrifice my joy for others, or am I going to pick what will bring me the most joy? Instead, what if, in avoiding serving God and others, we are running away from the very thing that will bring us the joy that we crave? Look at a few places quickly with me that Paul is rejoicing in Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 18, I can rejoice in prison because to live is to continue to serve Christ and to die is to gain his presence. In, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse, verse 4, 
He says to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He says this after in 3.14, telling them to press on toward the goal of Christ Jesus. Could it be this morning that your lack of joy is because you're looking for joy in all the wrong places? That is, you're not after too much joy, but you're after too little joy. As C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. You see, friends, our joy is found in service. The uh, postmodern writer David Foster Wallace, who is by no means an orthodox theologian, but I think he's right about this, he says, our own present culture has harnessed these forces of money and power and selfhood in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. We have the freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but of course there are different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention, awareness, and discipline and effort, and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad of petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having lost some infinite thing. You see, what Foster senses here is something explained by Paul. One crucial way to fight for joy in the Christian life is to become a servant. As we lay down ourselves, and trust Jesus to take care of us as we serve others, this is where joy is found. Look not only to your own interests, he tells us in chapter 2, but also to the interests of others. Well, that sounds awfully messy, doesn't it? That's going to cost emotional energy, financial sacrifice. Why in the world would I do that? And look at chapter 2, he tells us. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, verse 1, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind. And look at verse 5. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is already yours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we follow a Savior whose ascension to heaven was precluded by ascending a hill with a cross on his shoulder. The joy that we found, if we want true greatness... It is found in denying ourselves. True exaltation is found in our own humiliation. You see, Jesus' exaltation was in his steady service, in washing feet, in his patient teaching, and ultimately in humbling himself to the point of death to give us life. We say we want community, but are we willing to serve each other? So I've got two ways for you to serve one another this morning. First, you're here. You did it, all right? This is one way to serve each other, by gathering together. You see, if we want community, we have to show up. We have to be here. And one way we do that is gathering together. I, you say, oh, I like singing in my car. That's fine. I'm good with that. I can skip church and sing in my car, and I get everything I, I want. I can listen to a podcast sermon, and it'll be good. That's, that's great. But who are you going to encourage unless there's somebody in the passenger seat, right? Who's going to be encouraged by seeing you there? Who's going to be built up in love? You see, there's joy there, but it's not joy together. It's joy apart. Second, you can cultivate joy together by being in a life group. You can live life on mission with other people. You can eat, encourage, pray, challenge. You see, the Lydias might come to church, but the jailers and slave girls might come to life group. And they get to see our joy together. They get to witness it firsthand. Wherever you are this morning, take your next step to cultivate joy together for the sake of your spiritual health and for the kingdom of Jesus. This is not the work of some special class of Christians. This is the work of the saints. Paul says to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You see, Paul writes to the saints. This morning... You think of saints, you think of St. Patrick, right? St. Mother Teresa. Saint is not a special class of Christian. I look around this room and I see all kinds of saints, right? I see uh, St. Samuel, see St. Rodney, see St. Matt. I see saints all around this room. You see, saint is not something we achieve by going to saint school, right? 
or by doing enough miracles, by raising ourselves from the dead, whatever it is, sainthood is not something we achieve. Sainthood is something Paul says that's already been given to them, to the saints in Philippi who are in Christ Jesus. We fight for joy by living as saints in Jesus. Christian, this morning, you are extraordinarily normal, and that is okay. Saint is not some extraordinary, you don't have to go be a missionary to become a saint. You don't need to be a pastor to become a saint. You already are a saint. Your sainthood has been declared by the living God. Saint literally means holy one, one who has been set apart. You do not make yourself holy. God declares you to be holy. You are, this morning, a saint in Christ Jesus. It's easy to grow weary comparing ourselves to other believers, right? Feel inadequate. I'll never, I'll never be a missionary, so I'm just going to go home and watch Cupcake Wars and chill out on the couch a little bit, right? This is an easy mindset for us to take. And yet, Paul, t- Paul says, no, I'm not writing to these saints over here and then you regular Christians who just give and tithe and hang out until heaven, right? He's writing to all the saints in Philippi who are in Christ Jesus. I love that. All the saints in Philippi. And yet fighting for joy and unity by serving and by living out an identity as a, a saint, this is, this is hard work, isn't it? This is difficult. Many of us, I sense in this room, if you're like me, um, there will either come a point or maybe you're already there when both of these things will be out of reach or at least seem, at least seem out of reach. Yes, I, I want joy. Right? I want to be a servant. I, I want to live out my identity as a saint. And yet, man, I'm just struggling to get out of bed this morning. The faith that seems so bright and, and vibrant six months ago or, or six years ago, it just it feels brittle. It feels like most someone is, I don't even know if it's still there. I want it. I pray for it. But that joy is exasperated, right? That joy is almost expired. Again, we don't drift toward joy together, do we? It's easy to, to drift away from the joy that sustained us. It's easy to drift away from our identity as a, a servant, from living out and serving other people, and to begin to grow inward, right? To calcify. Say, I need to take care of myself on this one. I don't know if, you know, it's like I've only got so much energy. This stuff is going to cost me. It's easy not to see ourselves as a saint and to simply see ourselves, I'm too, I don't have all the skills that so-and-so has, right? So I'm just, I'm just going to kind of step back a little bit, step away from the ministry that God's entrusted to me. And so I want to close this introduction by reminding you that we partner together in the gospel because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Paul says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We hear a lot in Scripture about peace with God, and rightly so. That is good news. We have peace with God. We are no longer at war with God in our sin, but God has made peace by the blood of his cross. But that's not what Paul says here. He says we have peace from God. He has given us peace. It's not simply peace with him, but it's peace from him. Peace, Alec Montier says, shalom combines harmony with completeness or fulfillment. Peace is both Godward and inward, but it is also that harmony in Christian relationships which we possess and pursue. It is both our experience and our strength in hard times. It is the inner assurance and tranquility that God ministers to the hearts of believers that keeps them spiritually confident even in the midst of of turmoil. You see, God offers us that peace, that really important kind of freedom that Foster Wallace described earlier, but it doesn't come from our working it up in ourselves. It doesn't come from us mustering it from thin air and a couple of nice, nicely worded chants. It comes by God's grace. You see, you're not going to be able to find joy by enough positive self-talk, but you could find joy by looking at the one who emptied himself, by the one who made himself a servant, being born in the likeness of men, but the one who didn't stay a servant, but is now exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Look upon Christ that you may be filled. Call out to Christ. He will answer. He will not leave you 
joyless. He will not leave you unsustained. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you're joyless this morning, keep going and cry out. Trust God. He will not let you down. Cry out to God. Plead for the joy that you had. Plead for the joy that you once knew. Do not give up on your first love. Persevere, believer. We will continue to see throughout this great letter that Jesus is worth it. He is worth the fight. Do not grow weary of doing good. But with Paul, count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we suffer, we suffer with Jesus. If we die, we die with Jesus. And if we persevere, we will be raised with Jesus. So to the saints in Ovilla, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us all that we need in Jesus. Lord, we see, even in these first few verses, we see Jesus' name three times. Lord, we are servants of Christ. We are saints in Christ. And we have peace from Christ. Lord, help us to see Jesus clearly this morning. I pray for those who, are, um, who feel as though their joy is faltering. Lord, who feel as though their unity has been broken. I pray that they would continue to persevere in joy together. Lord, I pray for those who, who know Lydia's and slave girls and jailers who are either far, near, or somewhere in between. Lord, I pray that you would give us the right words to speak. And also, Lord, give us wisdom in uh, when to show by the fruits of our lives, to continue to be faithful in speaking, but also to be faithful in doing. Lord, I pray that the example of each person in this room would open up doors for the gospel to be proclaimed in ways that um, you have ordained and planned. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the calling that we have been given. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who feels as though they are one of those three, who feels as though they do not yet know Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would show them the good news of the gospel this morning, that you would, as you did for Lydia, awaken their hearts to know truly what it is to follow the King. So, Father, we pray all these things because you are worth it. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our obedience. So may all these things be for your glory, King Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.